Talkers. Welcome to No Prize from God, episode 27. No Prize from God features conversations with creative people about belief, unbelief, and everything between. I'm your host, Ryan J. Downing, and my guest this episode is Adam Morris, author of the book American Messiahs, False Prophets of a Damn Nation. Adam is a writer, editor, and literary translator based in California. He is a recipient of the Susan Sontag Foundation Prize in Literary Translation, a Northern California Book Award in Prose Translation, and a PhD in Literature from Stanford University. What makes this book so perfect for No Prize from God is that, as the New Yorker put it, it's all about how cults made America. In the book, Morris persuasively argues that, at least politically, some messianic movements were often light years ahead of their time. He examines the lives and beliefs of a linked procession of self-appointed prophets, who tried to upend American religion and the American way of life. The book tells the stories of people like Cyrus Teed, who founded the Koreshian Unity Commune, Quaker pacifist Jemima Wilkinson, who called herself the public universal friend, the all-friend, and the comforter, among other names, Thomas Lake Harris, leader of the Brotherhood of New Life, Father Divine from the 1930s, and one of Divine's followers, the Reverend Jim Jones. As the New Yorker article Explains Morris's account of Jones's bizarre star-crossed life is quite good, and he helpfully lingers on how completely a man of the evangelical left Jones was. For the vast majority of American history, as Morris reminds us, movements we would today call evangelical were largely leftist, which is best evidenced by the towering figure of William Jennings Bryan. Abolitionism was an obviously leftist concern, as was feminism, but so was, at one time, temperance. All three movements were spurred on by influential American evangelicals pursuing their own version of social justice. This was the Christian tradition from which Jim Jones emerged, outspoken, fiery, and unmistakably progressive. Adam and I have a fascinating conversation about this book, one of my favorites so far with No Prize From God. You can always learn more about our guests and the topics we discuss at noprizefromgod.com. You can follow No Prize From God on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. You can follow me on Twitter at Ryan Downing and on Instagram at SuperheroHQ. And you can check out other PopCurse shows at popcurse.com. Remember, the best way you can support this podcast is to leave a five-star rating and write a nice little review on Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcast platform of choice. So here it is, my conversation with Adam Morris. This is No Prize from God.
bit about your background and uh, how you came to discover that the written word was not only uh, going to be a big part of your life, but was going to become your career? Well, that's a long story, but I am from central Pennsylvania. That's where I grew up. It's a pretty insular part of the country, not many portals to the outside world, especially in the 80s and 90s when I was growing up there. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one of the things I, I didn't have really a literary family, uh, not a lot of books in the house. Uh, although we did go to the library quite a bit uh, as a kid, we were very, you know, working class family. That's that's just one of the things we did. And one of my escapes as a kid who didn't really fit into any other, um, you know, outlet typical to what kids are supposed to do was books. That's a pretty typical story among writers uh, as well as academics. And you know, fast forward, I, I went to college. I majored in English. I pursued graduate education. I actually have a PhD in Spanish and Portuguese and work as a literary translator. But before doing any of that, I was living in Philadelphia one summer doing a nonprofit internship with an arts organization. And the organization was called First Person Arts, and it's a storytelling, memoir, and documentary organization. They support mm what I believe is the only festival of memoir and documentary exclusive art in the country. And it was maybe in its fourth year when I was working there. And the two folks who were my coworkers, uh, one of them had known everything there was to know about Philadelphia and really got me interested in local history. And actually that was how I first found out about father divine was, was from her. Hmm. It's fascinating. Yeah. And I, you know, some similarities here. I also come from a blue collar working class family. And I, while I've lived in California for the last 20 years, I was born and raised in Indianapolis. Mm-hmm. And yeah, similar story in terms of escaping into books, uh, especially for me, it was fantasy and sci-fi and comic books and music and all of that stuff, you know, became a big part of my life. Um, as an adult, I find for better or worse, um, all of my reading is nonfiction. I can't remember the last time I read a a book of fiction, actually. Um, But yeah, and then the memoir thing also hits right where I live as I, uh, the end of this year, will have my first co-write published by a, you know, legitimate publishing entity, one might say. And it's a a memoir that I, I did with a friend of mine um, who's a, a guy, you know, best known for being in a band and that sort of thing. And I've got two more of those in the works next year. So congratulations. Yeah. So, thank you. Um, and so, yeah, so it's all, uh, right at my alley, every, everything you're talking about. And also it's interesting, you know, before we get into American Messiahs, it's interesting that you're talking about some of that local history and lore and, strange stories, uh, you know, on the ground in a place like Pennsylvania, because in working on this book with my buddy, Andy, he was born and raised in Cincinnati and Mm -hmm. we ended up with a whole chapter about strange occurrences and folklore and ghost stories and urban legends in the Cincinnati area. And that really broadened my perspective on those sorts of stories about how, you know, as much as we think about 
America as being super homogenized, right? And everything has a strip mall and a Starbucks and a McDonald's, how there is a lot of this strange, uh, oftentimes esoteric pseudo supernatural, uh, history all around America. That's very localized. And I think that was one of the big attractions to the book for me was, you know, some stories I was familiar with, but didn't know all of the details about. And then there are plenty of characters <laughs> who pop up in American Messiahs that I had never heard of. Yeah. And I have a lot to say about that, actually. I mean, we don't even have to get into upstate New York right now. I'll just stay on Pennsylvania. We can maybe move on to upstate New York later. Mm -hmm. You know, the famous burned over district up there. I've spent a lot of time there uh, for research, but Pennsylvania was a place I took for granted growing up. I mean, I think everybody kind of does that with the place where they're from. They don't think very critically about what they see or what the social environment is really like. And I grew up in Lancaster County in the heart of Amish Dutch country. So mm. there were a lot of Amish, Old Order Mennonites and so forth, uh, breath, plainclothes brethren communities, the Ephrata Cloister, which is – the archaeological site of an 18th century cult, if you will, um, in Ephrata, Pennsylvania is nearby. And these are all things that just kind of seemed like a background to me. <laughs> and, you know, Pennsylvania is also very odd in the sense I didn't fully appreciate how odd it was really until I got out. It's got its urban core, you know, on the two flanks with Pittsburgh and, and Philadelphia. Philadelphia is very much the Northeast Corridor. Amish Dutch country is only two hours west of there. Couldn't be, you know, more radically different in terms of the sociology of the area. And then just immediately to the west of there begins Appalachia. I mean, people forget that Pennsylvania is an Appalachian state. It's very wooded, pretty much like I don't know what percentage of the state is state game land, but a lot of it is forested and, you know, very still mysterious. And the part I was from in the, you know, Harrisburg, Lancaster, exurban area had a lot of history that was being erased because of the way the Rust Belt has been abandoned. And so when, for example, President Trump gave that much derided speech on his inauguration day about American carnage, mm -hmm. I'm by no means a supporter of the president, but I knew exactly what he was talking about. That was the visual landscape of my childhood was, you know, pulling up to a video store in a strip mall, you know, in 1990 or whatever with my mom in her banged up car and you know half the stores were closed and there was you know a five and dime store called james way and maybe a pet store and a few other really arbitrary businesses that were hanging on and you know the parking lot full of weeds and that and that kind of thing so that really it was it was growing up in that area that led me to have such a strong interest in the philadelphia region's history you know, when I moved to the city to do that internship, it was, like I said, between years of college. And I was on this grant that let you do a nonprofit internship so that the nonprofit didn't have to pay you and the college paid you. And I scraped by on $2,500 for the whole summer eating a lot of pasta. But it allowed me to walk around the city a whole bunch because I you know, couldn't really even afford bus fare. Mm -hmm. And I saw so much that really surprised me. I mean, here is a city that I didn't go to much as a kid because we were country people. We didn't do that. 
And I see all of these buildings, some of which were industrial and abandoned, and that I was kind of accustomed to, but a lot of grand-looking civic or residential buildings that had also been abandoned, whole entire neighborhoods that were abandoned um, or semi-abandoned. And these properties, especially a lot of the locations of former civic institutions that really upheld the city before its economic collapse and depopulation over the course of 50 years, it was those buildings that really piqued my curiosity because they were evidence of a different kind of social habitus in that region. And one of those buildings, as I said earlier, or as I alluded to, was the Divine Lorraine Hotel. I mean, it's got this huge neon sign that at that time wasn't lighting up anymore. The Divine Lorraine was abandoned in 1999. I was seeing it after five years of it, five or six years or so of it going to rack and ruin, covered in graffiti, mm. boarded up, and looking really just bizarre. You know, a 10-story former luxury apartment building on one of the principal arteries of the city, maybe 10 blocks from City Hall, just lurching into disrepair. And I became very interested at at that moment or over the course of that summer in these kind of forgotten episodes of American history, which is really eventually what led, I don't know, 10 years later to the publication of my book. Hmm. Wow. And <laughs> I suppose it should come as a little shock to, shock to me that a PhD uh, and multilinguist is uh, so well-spoken, but this is a, this is a treat. So I appreciate even just listening to you. Um, Believe it or not, I've actually spent a little bit of time in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, uh, visiting a business that was once headquartered there called Relapse Records. And mm. it fits right into your, that whole juxtaposition of the myriad of, you know, that, the, the intersection of all those disparate and strange cultures and that Relapse is primarily known for death metal and other extreme genres and at the time, they were headquartered in the basement of what I can best describe as a Santa Claus store. You know, it was like one of those <laughs> tiny kind of rundown strip malls, and it just was a place that sold Christmas decorations, I believe, year-round. And, yeah, as you were sort of on the approach driving up the road to get to Relapse Records, you were going through Amish country. So, right. yeah, you look to your left and your right, and there's Amish land and then you pull up in the parking lot, there's the Santa Claus store and then you walk down a set of steps into the basement and there are a bunch of, you know, long haired malcontent Cretans blasting uh, <laughs> you know, the most obscene death metal. And yeah, boy, if that doesn't kind of summarize <laughs> what you're describing. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's a lot of talk now, especially since COVID-19 of people moving back to these ex-urban cities because they have great housing stock. I mean, Lancaster yeah. has beautiful historic homes and they have developed over the last 10, 15 years of this nationwide rental crisis, the same kind of amenities in terms of coffee shops and breweries and whatever mm. that bigger cities have. And they, people forget that they kind of always did have this variegated social complexion. You know, a lot of the, pretty much the only place when I was growing up where racial minorities lived uh, was in the ex-urban cities surrounding all this farmland, or it, I should say interspersed throughout all this farmland. 
And they, Lancaster has one of the highest concentrations of Syrian refugees because the Mennonites have done such an amazing job opening their homes and their churches and everything else to them. So wow. I don't know if it's got the highest concentration, but it's up there. And, you know, there, there's all these unexpected things going on in places like that. And I'm really glad to know that, that you've been to Lancaster. It's, it's in so many ways uh, constitutive or maybe illustrative of a lot of the kinds of social contradictions that get lost in this narrative propelled by social elite media on mm. both coasts. Mm. Indeed. Yeah, I've also spent some time in Greensburg where I have some close friends uh, who, who grew up there and some of them, you know, moved away to Brooklyn and Philadelphia and, and much to your point, um, just about all of them have, have gone back. They're all in Greensburg again as, you know, adults raising families and so on. Mm -hmm. I was looking at my childhood home in Southport, Indiana yesterday. Uh, one of my oldest friends who was my neighbor back then and lives in Alaska now, he somehow he got he got to looking at our old neighborhood and was sending me links and yeah my <laughs> my childhood home sold last summer for a hundred and sixty thousand dollars <laughs> yeah and it, yeah and for me living in Orange County California in twenty twenty that is <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> fascinating I guess is one word <laughs> yeah now you said you're from Indianapolis area yeah. where yeah. you grew up obviously the sort of adopted hometown of Jim Jones. Mm -hmm. Did you, what was your, I guess I'm the one asking you the question. No, please right now, go for it. What, what was your exposure to that growing up? I mean, I'm not really sure when you grew up or what kind of legacy remained of people's temple. Well, it's a great question because I'm generation X. So I, I think we're probably somewhat close in age. Um, but I was, you know, I graduated from high school in 1992. So my first memories of Jim Jones and the association with Indiana <laughs> was, believe it or not, when Raiders of the Lost Ark came out. Because people are talking about this great movie hero, Indiana Jones, and all of the adults were snickering because apparently Indiana Jones was a nickname for Jim Jones in those books. Oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> I never thought about that. And that's how I, that's how I learned about the, the whole story of Jonestown was, yeah, uh, at some point asking my dad, hey, why is this so funny to all of you? <laughs> What's you know, I could just sense that there was something they were they were tickled by the idea of a movie character named Indiana Jones for a altogether different reason. So. So, yeah, so that's how I learned about it. And, you know, part of it might be my own personal interest in this stuff. But there were, you know, I had awareness of Jim Jones, I had some awareness that Charles Manson had spent some small portion of time in the Midwest. Um, mm -hmm. I think he was incarcerated in Ohio at some point. And, um, you know, so there was some kind of Manson connection that you would hear about in Indiana and in, in certain quarters. And then there were people in, in nearby Ohio, like Jeff Lundgren and uh, you know, you, I would definitely, as a teenager especially, start to learn about and hear about some of these um, interesting and bizarre sects that that were around. We also yeah. had, I mean, I suppose this isn't unlike a lot of other places 
but we also had a at one point pretty thriving white supremacist skinhead problem in our mm-hmm. punk and hardcore scene of the late 80s uh, kind of dissipated by the early 90s and then had a resurgence at some point in the mid to late 90s but it was indiana was home base for a couple of the larger factions of uh white supremacist so-called skinheads i say so-called skinheads because we were also fortunate enough to have traditional skins and, and sharp skins and you know those sorts of groups going on at the same time but i, I bring that up because those guys being around was my first encounter with the sort of neo-pagan odinism stuff mm, you know right. seeing people wearing thor's hammers and and that sort of thing that you know now i see in like I've been binge watching The Last Kingdom, a Viking show that's on Netflix from the UK, and it's sort of like all that stuff comes rushing back because it's like, oh, I, you know, I saw people who were kind of adopting this as a as a costume as when mm-hmm. I was a teenager. Um, but yeah, so going back to this idea for American Messiahs and this uh, great Genesis story, no pun intended, that you just outlined for what would inevitably become the book. One of the things I wanted to ask you about is the kind of overarching theme of the book Right, seems to be that, and I think I even just described these as bizarre wayward cults and, you know, for lack of a better descriptor, but your book posits and I think makes a very strong persuasive argument for the idea that these aren't aberrations in American history. These are essential to American history. If you, if you could kind of expand on that. A little bit. I love that. Yeah. So one of the things that really guided me as I – two things, actually, I'll say that really guided me as I was researching and then writing the book, and especially as I was conducting interviews with some surviving members of the Peace Mission and People's Temple. Hmm. And the first thing that I'll say, just because I think it's so important, is – so many people have judged these groups based on what they did. And People's Temple is a very good example of one, and acknowledge, will acknowledge that it was a horrible incident, but one terrible thing that kind of eclipsed everything else the group did. And that was the group suicide, mm. which 918 people died. And. I wanted to focus on what they thought they were doing. And mm. that's an important distinction for all of the groups that I look at in the text. Yes. And it was something that I had to keep at the forefront of my mind as I went through archives and read letters, especially from some of these 19th century groups, where there aren't any survivors, obviously, around to interview or to tell the story. We only have the written archive. And some people have criticized me and my book for not exposing these leaders or the members of these groups more as frauds or as having conducted some kind of fraudulent enterprise or having deluded or duped their followers. Frankly, I think that is just the nature of religion. People like following leaders. And just because these were minority religions, minority in the sense that they never attain any kind of mainline status doesn't really differentiate them qualitatively from other religions that did like Mormonism Hmm. or, or Christianity for that matter. 
And so there's that distinction between what people did and what they thought they were doing uh, because a lot of the other groups in the text are also judged on their failures to accomplish what they said they were going to do. And I don't think that's as relevant as their sincere belief and dedication of their entire lives to some of those projects. And the second idea is the psychoanalytic idea of the repressed and the return of the repressed. And what I really see happening with American history as told through the rise and fall of messianic groups, and I can say more about why I chose the ones that I did, mainly it was because they were the most successful, uh, in quotations, Mm. at garnering members and longevity of the organization. But what I really saw was that there's a continuity from the pre-independence era, the colonial era of you know, the Puritan settlements, all the way through, even past Jonestown, really, but all the way through the 70s, most certainly, of groups, Christian groups, Judeo-Christian groups, rediscovering certain aspects of Christ's teachings as well as the original church that's described, albeit somewhat obliquely, in the book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles. And there are these passages, two verses in particular, that suggest that the first communities of Christians held all property in common and did not respect private property and welcomed everyone, rich or poor, into their ranks. And so you see this rhetoric resurface in every single one of the six primary groups that I profiled in the book, as well as many others that, you know, I didn't have the space to do a complete catalog of every messianic sect in America because there were so many. <laughs> so many. <laughs> yeah, so so what you have is a country that was founded on the one hand by religious dissidents who thought they were reforming a church that had gone astray, that had really become seduced by power and property in England following the English Reformation. And the separatist Puritans who were the first ones to come over were separatists because they really thought the the church could not even be reformed from within. So they wanted to separate. And that impulse to separate from the established mainline Christian church of whatever one's time period is, is what you see happening over and over and over again with each of these groups. It's what Jim Jones said he was doing. It's what Father Divine said he was doing. It's what Cyrus Teed and Thomas Lake Harris said they were doing. In every case, I mean, some of the most extreme rhetoric came from Cyrus Teed, who said the established Reformed churches, Reformed basically just meaning Protestant, had prostituted themselves, had given up on reforming the reforming mission that Martin Luther had inaugurated, and that was really at the the, the basis of the Reformation, was getting back away from the doctrine and the sort of fetishism of the Catholic Church and its political intrigue and back towards a more pure Christian community like the ones described in the New Testament. And so each of these groups sees themselves doing that. The Shakers thought they were establishing and really believed that they were establishing the Millennial Church in America. Mm -hmm. And you cannot question the sincerity of people who devote their entire lives to a project like this. And 
you know, that's an area where I've, I've gotten into disagreements with other scholars who are, well, actually, really not the scholars, primarily readers and <laughs> critics who think, who want me to be more suspicious of the motives of the members and in some cases, especially People's Temple, but in particular, the leaders. And yet, as you, as you said, you could cast those same suspicions on more successful faith traditions, which isn't to say that every one of the, you know, the Abrahamic faiths and all of the major religions of the world, you know, <laughs> I would love to see a, a math breakdown proportionately of atrocities associated with these larger ones versus these smaller ones. You know, it's like maybe some of these smaller groups didn't have the opportunity to have more crimes and misdeeds associated with them and also more good works associated with them just simply by nature of the fact that they never got any larger. I think one thing that that confuses the issue for a lot of people is that a lot of the discussions around some of these sects and organizations are intertwined with reasonable discussions about other things we value or other things we might support. I mean, for, for example, and you talk about <laughs> the the OG Koresh in your book, but for example, <laughs> with, with Waco, you know, there are folks who look at it as uh, government overreach and abuse of power and a exec, you know, execution um, by the powers that be and the, the will, the, the right to freedom of religion and self-determination. There's all these like libertarian arguments that are in favor of the Branch Davidians and then there's the religious side of it <laughs> and the problematic, uh, to say the least, um, views and practices. And then it gets into, as you've pointed out, how much more or less problematic were some of those views and, and practices and the charisma of its theater and so on than other comparable groups that are more mainstreamed or larger. So I think that it gets confusing when uh, people's emotions get tied up in conversations about these groups because it all sort of it's just such a mess of of different things that are converging in in these stories you know it is and you know i'd only touch on the branch davidians briefly at the conclusion of the book because they've been so widely studied already mm -hmm. but the justification in that case for the very extreme government intervention that happened was that they might commit mass suicide and children <laughs> might be involved in that against their will, as happened basically not even 20 years beforehand in Jonestown. And it's such a strange appeal because the result ended up being a raid that killed everyone anyway. And what was really at stake there course there were also allegations of child abuse which were unfounded uh, according to government investigators who had already completed an investigation but what was really at stake is american culture has learned to dislike closed and somewhat secretive groups especially if they are religious in nature hmm. and i think everything i've written about in the book can show you why one reason is those groups 
don't participate in the economy in the way that Americans are expected to. And that was – I didn't finish my thought earlier, but that was the second point I was going to bring up of this founding tension and the return of the repressed. We had a, a society that was founded by those religious dissenters that I mentioned who were trying to purify their society and purify the church by starting over in America. Mm -hmm. But immediately after that, because of the way mercantilism was shaping the world, you have very enterprising – swashbuckling entrepreneurs getting there too and there's this founding tension in new england between business and religious reform and it really never goes away the capitalist corruption of the churches is what all of the leaders in my book keep railing against and you see it in various manifestations uh in the gilded age when cyrus teed was gathering all of his followers it was the exploitation of labor, which was horrific compared to the standards that we've come to expect today, mm. although Amazon does seem determined to go back to the 19th century. <laughs> and Indeed. what you really saw was people, uh, to, you know, religious leaders saying, and they were a minority of religious leaders saying, this is unconscionable, this is terrible, this is not Christian, this is exploitative, and so on. And you have the mainstream churches kind of allying with business people. And that is really what drove people to join groups like the Koreshian Unity and later, during the Great Depression, Father Divine's Peace Mission. Wow, and that's you've really hit upon something with the with the labor thing and how that is part of the history and the shaping of America. And you and that is it does appear as a as another theme throughout the book. And you know, I'm reminded of so many stories from so many of these groups. I'm, of course, the name's escaping me right now, but there's one organization I, I read a profile on that is a splinter group of the Nation of Islam, one of the groups that split off, uh, you know, following the, the death of its founder, or I suppose not its, not its founder, but Elijah Muhammad, its most prominent leader. And the one of the, the main things about that profile was <laughs> the child labor. You know, kids being as young as nine and 10 years old working in these uh, religious group owned restaurants. Right. At, yeah, with standards that are completely illegal and immoral by current mores, um, even, you know, even, <laughs> even with what Amazon gets away with. Uh, and yet the religious element, the religious compulsion uh, keeps parents. Um, putting their kids there as, as an alternative to, as you said, a participation in the economy in the way that most of us expect everyone else to participate. It's really fascinating to think about that in terms of shaping how our society is, is structured and where the religious views informed a lot of this stuff. Right. And the parallel that I know the most about with that is obviously Father Divine. And it's hard to count membership with the Peace Mission because they didn't keep those kind of records, and it's hard to know how many people actually thought Father Divine was God versus lived in one of his heaven's extensions or worked in one of his co-op businesses. But a conservative estimate is a couple of million people, and that's a lot. Wow. And yeah. what, that was a couple of million people during a very economically fragile time in the country who were not only participating in this parallel economy, you know, Father Divine was fond of capitalism in the sense that he 
used it to advance his own ends. But they had this network of businesses that stretched from coast to coast. And if you were a follower who lived in one of the communes and worked in one of the businesses, you really weren't participating in the rest of the economy because a lot of the patrons of Father Divine's restaurants, which were the most common type of, of establishment that they had, they were the poor and indigent who came for the cheap meals during the Depression and during the war. And they were other members of mm. the community. You had an automatic base for your business to succeed if you got Father's Divine's name on it. And those people had to come up with their own startup capital for those businesses, and they worked hard to, to earn it. But once it was all set up, they were in a, a parallel net, parallel economy, a sort of sub-network of businesses within the larger capitalist enterprise. And that that's threatening on the face of it already. But... Father Divine was using those farms in upstate New York to source his New York City restaurants. You know, it, it was getting pretty complex, the level of logistical integration he had imagined. Mm -hmm. And he's buying all these fancy properties and doing what was just anathema at the time, which was integrating them. And this is this becomes an economic threat on many levels, because, as you know, or, or as I would posit, Jim Crow and and. American racism has a strong class dimension and the economy, quote unquote, needed a subclass of citizens to exploit. It always does. That's how capitalism works. And right now, those those that, you know, the subclass or low wage, extremely low wage workers uh, are all overseas because of neoliberal restructuring. But at the time uh, we were at war or there was the depression and production was pretty much domestic and cheap labor had to be found somewhere. And Father Divine was subverting the paradigm completely, not only the economic arrangement, but the racial relations that undergirded the success of that, of that relationship. Wow. This is, <laughs> this is delivering in every way that I hoped that it would and more. So thank you for that. Um, Two, I have two other sort of big questions uh, related to the book and about the book. Uh, I'll, I'll start with this one because you just opened a nice door into it. Of the groups that you profiled, what are, in your mind, some of the positive things that they brought to the table and to the fabric of America and, and its development? Because, of course, when we think about, say, the Jonestown group um we think about you know the <laughs> how it ended um what if anything um about some of these organizations do you think were positive things that that perhaps linger on or triggered other positive developments in communities i'm going to start in a really su maybe surprising and unexpected place with this and connect it back to the mention that you made of Charles Manson hmm. and the Manson family is pretty well known as a cult but it did have a belief system and when I was first getting interested in this subject I also read Helter Skelter hmm. and I was I was young when I read it I was in my early 20s and I got the chills on a summer day just having the realization that I easily could have been conscripted into a group like that because of how alienated I felt from sort of mainstream society at certain points in my life. And that's, I realized that's why I'm doing this podcast now. 
yeah, yeah having so that same that, yeah, weird sense of familiarity when you study some of these groups where you're like oh man i could have been susceptible to this completely yeah it's that sense of alienation that i recognized in primarily the young women that he recruited to the group there were some men too and you know that's roughly contemporaneous with people's temple and i've spoken to a lot of people who were members of people temple who are survivors they either left the group before its final phases for various reasons or they never made it to Jonestown, or in one case, and she has recently passed away, a woman who was not only in Jonestown uh, for ev everything, uh, she only happened to be away on that day that the suicides happened. She was a procurer, and she was on their boat going to Georgetown, the capital, mm -hmm. to get supplies. And she has said, I believe she said it on Anderson Cooper's show, that if she had been there, she would have committed suicide. And, you know, this was supposed to be kind of a gotcha, aha question. But by sensationalizing it like that, the Cooper and the show, they were kind of missing the point, which is mm -hmm. how attractive the group's ideology actually was. And I'll use People's Temple as an example because most people find it so typical of a cult or of the dangers of these kind of groups. And in some ways it is, but what they, the, the group had a long history. You know, Jim Jones was in Indianapolis in the fifties building the first integrated congregation. So you have to give him that. Mm -hmm. You have to give him the fact that he was committed to racial integration throughout his whole entire career. Did he have other perhaps psychotic tendencies? I would suppose so. And there's plenty of evidence for that. Did he become abusive and a drug addict and completely paranoid by the end of his life? Yes, there's lots of evidence there. But he wasn't the only person in the group, and he didn't single-handedly determine people's relationship to it. Mm. There was a whole satellite congregation in Los Angeles, right? Pretty big. Mm -hmm. uh, and he wasn't down there that often. You know, they would – at the peak of his Los Angeles community, he was going down maybe once a week or twice a month. But a lot of people really believed in the stated ideology of the group, which is why I always go back to what the group thought it was doing. Mm. And they were trying to build a, a community of mutual aid and support and social activism. They were huge, especially in the Bay Area, in social activism, medical aid to the needy, meals and so forth. He copied a lot of Father Divine's methods uh, after visiting the peace mission, but they were trying to build a raceless or a society where racism, classism, and ageism would no longer exist. And they did, down to the tiniest details, practice that. Uh, Jones always instructed members who were living in the communes that each of the communes had to be integrated to the extent possible. Even when they were living in Redwood Valley, uh, you know, a couple hours north of San Francisco. When that was a very conservative area back then, and he demanded that when they went places in cars, that a white person and a black person sit together in the car. Mm. And you have to take the group in all of its complexity to understand why people were attracted to it. And Laura Johnson Cole, the member that I was referring to earlier who has just passed away, she explained how she had tried to get involved with the Black Panthers. She didn't really feel like she fit in. The 
energy surrounding everything that was happening in the 60s drove her and a lot of other people to radical groups. People's Temple was far from the only one. And, you know, she didn't join the Weathermen, but <laughs> she, joined, she had a religious orientation and she felt the pull towards this group that was kind of rebooting Christianity, rebooting these ideas of charity, aid, assistance, and so forth, and equality. Equality was the biggest one. Um, and really practicing what they were preaching. At least that's what it seemed to people who joined. And, you know, there are stories of the deterioration of that mission over the years and how it was corrupted, as religions always are, by power, namely Jim Jones' pursuit of power in San Francisco government. And his grandiose illusions of himself as a national political figure. That's really, I think, where he was thinking he was heading. Uh, and by the time they get to South America as an international pariah is kind of how he viewed himself. <laughs> and yeah, I mean, we laugh, but it's there's so many tapes. It was the 70s, right? They taped everything. And you can listen to them all yourself because the FBI has them on their website, and so does the Jonestown Project through San Diego State University. And you can hear how um, – you hear evidence of his manipulation, but you also hear evidence of regular members' sincerity. And right. Right. the way there was a veneer of communism and democracy or what, what we could call socialist democracy – Adhering to every aspect of their meetings, they they incorporated Maoist practices of group criticism. Um, they, by the end, really saw themselves as a Marxist-Leninist organization. They were far from the only group with those kind of leanings in the 60s reacting to the political climate. So unless you comprehend the whole thing, you will just see it as a cult, and it, it won't make sense except as mind control. And some of my critics have said I don't account – for mind control, but that's because I don't believe in it. And, you know, people have taken issue with that. Um, I believe in mind control only insofar as ideological conditioning can be thought of as mind control. And that's really what was going on in all of these groups, most powerfully in People's Temple. I would absolutely agree with you. And I think you make a very persuasive argument about this particular point. To me, I see, yeah, ideological conditioning it's the frog in boiling water, right? I mean, that's how yes. people end yes. up with the most extreme end where, of course, when someone breaks one of these organizations down to you by all of their worst attributes and wackiest sounding beliefs, you go, well, that's easy to reject. Anyone who doesn't is clearly a fool or is, you know, being mind controlled. And it neglects um, the number of truthful things and good works, so to speak, you know, to paint a, with a broad brush that attract people in the first place. And then also the reasons why people stay even as they encounter the things that are less savory and why, and people that think they can reform organizations from within or, you know, resurrect some sort of true spirit of the, of the group, right. And wrestle it away from people who are poisoning it or, or what have you. I mean, yeah, as you said, there's so much, context that goes around each of these organizations and the little that most of us know about them that haven't studied them. So, yeah, I think that's, that's fascinating. Um, the other big question I wanted to ask you is in terms of continuity between the 
messianistic figures that you chose to profile and the organizations that were around them. Can you point to anything that they share in terms of why they collapsed? Why? I mean, the, uh, the obvious answer would seem to be, well, when it's based around the charisma of a particular leader and that leader's gone, that's generally the end. But we could also point to other religions and organizations where that hasn't been the case, where there's either been successors or there's been, you know, a deification of that original figure. Uh, why do you think the groups that you profiled, uh, do they do they share anything in common about why they are, are, are more or less no more today? The ones that disappear refuse to go mainstream in some way or another. Mm -hmm. And the counterexample is Mormonism. Mormonism did have a communal phase. It did have a charismatic, not a messiah, but a prophet in Joseph Smith. He was even martyred, you know, in his jail cell. His writings are not that persuasive as scripture. I'll just put it that mildly. And the group had all the trappings that people would associate with a cult, including aberrant sexual practices, which whether or not a minority religion has aberrant sexual practices, they will always be alleged because that's an easy way to take them out. Mm. That's sort of what happened to Thomas Lake Harris uh, in here in California. And America is, is at core still a puritanical nation. We don't like wife swapping. Look at what happened to the Oneida community. You know, it lasted a long time until people got wind of or the, the wrong people got wind of, of the type of aberrant sexual practice they had there, namely complex marriage by which everyone in the community of 200 people was married to everyone else. Mm -hmm. And <laughs> right. And, and the older women initiating younger men into sex because that was believed to be the mo most responsible way to do it and vice versa with young girls sleeping with older men. And we look at that from all of today's vantage points and we evaluate it with today's morals and so on. But had that group abandoned those practices in the way that Mormonism eventually abandoned polygamy before that, long before that had abandoned its communal aspects, although we, I would be remiss not to remark that some polygamous and communal Mormon splinter sects still do exist in Utah and elsewhere. And the Mormons um, also had to integrate eventually, right? Because wasn't there – That's right. There was a period yeah. where – I think someone sued <laughs> to get in, which is – you know, it reminds yes, me of the quote about not, not wanting to be a member of any – group that would have me but <laughs> and yeah. now one of their biggest uh selling points is how diverse the church has become and oh, wow. i believe the the black woman congress uh person from salt lake city mia love i believe she was a mormon um whenever i go to new york city i always see ads for the mormon church and it's got a very diverse face on the ad usually mm -hmm. and when you go to salt lake city as i have done you see how diverse the – I don't know what they do or why all these missionaries co congregate there. I mean it's the capital of the church. But um, they bring people from all over the world there as part of their mission just like they send people out all over the world from the U.S. And it's extremely diverse. A lot of uh, Mormon communities in Mexico and in Asia and so on. So yeah, they 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 – develop ways not to be destroyed by the society at large because when too many 
social sins aggregate, eventually the citizenry locally or nationally will appeal to law enforcement to get rid of these groups. And that is a trend you see with Father Divine, you see it with Cyrus T, Thomas mm-hmm. Lake Harris, and obviously with Jim Jones. I mean, as paranoid as he was, you know, paranoid people are often correct that someone is out to get them. Um, and that becomes a spiral in their paranoia. And Jim Jones was correct. There was a government conspiracy to get rid of people's temple after a certain point. I mean, that's why the congressman was sent down to Guyana to conduct that investigation. And the post office was involved. The IRS was involved. None of them really wanted to be doing that. But, you know, this concerned citizens group in the Bay Area had gathered enough political support to make some things happen. And that is when he really began to see himself as a pariah and a victim. And he thought, well, if that's going to be the case, we might as well make this big historical punctuation mark on our group and say, look, fascist America, which is what he called it, uh, drove us out for our beliefs, which isn't really true. They left because he was facing you know, some sketchy legal situation in in San Francisco. But, you know, he had everyone convinced that if they went back to the U.S., they would be put in jail, which in prison, really, and that American prisons, he was saying this in the 70s, uh, early 70s, that the American prison system was a system of concentration camps. And mm. a lot of what he said about the police force and it's all on tape, like I said. And a lot of what he said about the prison system has been echoed in a lot of the rhetoric and activism surrounding Black Lives Matter, surrounding Michelle Alexander's book, The New Jim Crow. I mean, his he was right about a lot of things. Uh, you know, wrong about some really and made some terrible decisions, of course. But um, Yes, they they once they become too repulsive to the values of capitalist America, consumerism, the nuclear family, um, the nine to five and so on. Somebody, you know, gets it, gets it into their head that they've got to go and will make that happen through, you know, political agitation. I'm not excusing anything that Jones did. He deserved to be investigated. And- no, but it's clearly the argument I think you're making is it's clearly more than just, uh, you know, oh, well, a, blo- a broken clock is right twice a day. It's like, well, no, it's more than that because people it is. join these organizations because there is truth and meaning and persuasive ideas present. Yeah. It's just all the other stuff that comes with it. That Yes. And that's right. And when you look at the roster of the folks who died in Jonestown, there were a lot of elderly black members of People's Temple who came up out of the South and went to the North as part of the Great Migration. These were the same people Father Divine uh, scooped up into his movement. Mm. And the reason they could is because the Great Migration fractured a lot of families and people were off of the kinship networks that they had in the South and you know, for 100 years, get to the North – Capitalism continues to fragment their families in these cities. The way of life is completely different, and people might move around a lot. And a lot of people were left without coherent social ties. The church becomes very important, but that wasn't enough for everyone. And these communes became really attractive to people who didn't have a formal kinship network 
outside of a church, like a, a nuclear family. And a lot of the folks who joined People's Temple and who died in Jonestown had that kind of background. And a lot of them came from the South. They were younger. They weren't part of the Great Migration, but they could not tolerate the racism of the South any longer and end up in California or join People's Temple when they swing through because Jim Jones made all these mission trips to other cities to pick people up and bring them to California. And it worked. And these, by and large, when you talk to survivors of the movement, they were people who vocalized how alienated they felt from their community, from their society, from the American economy, how left for dead they already felt. And these groups said, you have a place here. And so people sometimes ask me, well, do you think this is going to happen again? And my answer to that is it has happened again. The backdrop and the context is different. The Branch Davidians were nothing like People's Temple, um, very different religious orientation and political orientation. But the circumstances that gave rise to all of these groups are arising once more. Mm -hmm. um, we have deep social unrest. We have massive economic inequality. And we have a population that is still very entranced by metaphysical ideas. So the new manifestation would probably pick up where Jim Jones left off. He started really talking a lot less about Jesus, except when it was convenient, and incorporating a lot of Eastern ideas, a lot of things from Buddhism, and especially from Hinduism into his um, sermons, or whatever you want to call them, and as well as political ideology that was even more effective, the, the Leninist uh, ideologies that he had. And I don't see why that couldn't happen again. Um, maybe it'll be someone who uses astrology or something else that's become much more uh, relevant to younger people or to, to this generation or self-help ideology. Or, as I point out in the book, there's this whole tech-oriented singularity movement that has like a digital futurist messianic timbre. Mm -hmm to it that is impossible to ignore and, and and has a promise of immortality attached to it correct um yeah i <laughs> i would say yeah in an uncertain chaotic times the appeal of conspiracy theories that offer us simple organized or, or even detailed explanations for complex, sometimes unanswerable questions. And I, I feel like that's always what's at the heart of it, whether it's QAnon or, you know, take your pick, the Patriot movement. Um, once right. people feel like they have a framework or astrology, and this isn't to take away anything from the, the possibilities that might exist in some metaphysical beliefs. I don't mean to do that, but anytime you have this, this, lens through which you now view the world and world events you feel that much more secure even if you're worried even if you're like okay i know the apocalypse is next week i better get ready for it you're, you're still you still have this different sort of contentedness in your certainty that you understand the signs and meanings and and the things around you and not unlike partisan politics where something happens in the world and immediately each of the two sides has their interpretation of it. And that becomes 
you know, the, the Hadith, the, the, you know, the, the gospel of uh, how we now view that particular topic. And yeah, it's all very fascinating. Um, last question for you uh, is I want to ask about the cutting room floor of American Messiahs. Surely there were other groups and individuals that uh, you contemplated, including, and the one that jumps to mind for me based on everything else we've talked about and based on your personal history and where you're from, I'm surprised John Africa isn't in your book. Well, yes. And I was actually thinking of, you're referring to move. Yes. You not? Yes. Uh, uh, formerly the Christian movement for life. Right. And Anarch I thought about primitivism, like so much stuff that you've touched. Yes. On. Yeah. yeah. And I thought about bringing that up earlier in our conversation when I was talking about Philadelphia, because I also mm -hmm. learned about MOVE during that summer and was totally horrified that this was not an extremely well-known event in American history. Mm -hmm. I'm, and I refer – I mean there were two big incidents with law enforcement, but I'm mainly referring to the bomb dropped on the house that killed practically everyone inside. And Yeah, we talk about the militarization of police now, and it's like we had like a Vietnam-era-style bombing <laughs> in Philadelphia. Domestic yeah. terrorism. And again, the allegation was really – Oh, they're mistreating the children, and that mm -hmm. was based on nutrition. They were vegan, right, mm -hmm. or vegetarian, <laughs> or something. They they, uh, they were they were vegan, which is also now widely accepted. Exactly, yeah. a diet reform, by the way, is common to all these groups as well. Mm -hmm. um, even Jim Jones passed through a vegetarian phase. Uh, you see the. Oh, the other thing that they were upset about was that these people were arming themselves. Well, as it turns out, that was pretty sensible. Um, <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, then, same with the Branch Davidians. <laughs> and what were they afraid mention, of? Well, <laughs> yeah, not to mention it's a second degree or Second Amendment right. Mm -hmm. uh, although, of course, you know, the allegation is always they have more weapons than they have registered and so forth. But right. yeah, same with the Branch Davidians. And so. I had to restrict myself in some way, and sure. I looked at the most successful of these groups that offered also a narrative device, which was they were paired historically into three pairs of two movements. There was Jemima Wilkinson and the Public Universal Friend um, paired with Anne Lee, Thomas Lake Harris paired with Cyrus Teed, Jim Jones paired with Father Divine. Hmm. These movements were aware of each other, they were contemporary to each other, and I document a handover in each case of either an ideological movement that acted as a connector, spiritualism connected the Quakers to Tom, uh, Thomas Lake Harris, who first became a spiritualist medium before he you know, developed his immortal breathing techniques. And Cyrus Teed was discovering the black community and trying to do outreach there and incorporate and he, he found his message very highly well received in black churches after moving to Florida. He had to traverse some of the southern states and he took the opportunity to preach in some of the black churches and some of his late writings, which he didn't publish but are in the archives in Florida, suggest that he, he began to under, understand the black community as part of this bigger problem of capitalism or I should rephrase that and say he saw their oppression, their racial oppression, as necessary to the form of capitalism that he already hated. And he began to speak about that to his membership, to acclimate them to the idea that they were going to integrate. And in his final novel, which he couldn't get published to save his life, although that was partly because it's not very good, is 
there's a future society imagined where a red race emerges on the island of Cuba. That's the amalgamation of all the other races. And this idea resurfaces later in the work of Jose Vasconcelos, uh, a Mexican philosopher who talks about La Raza Cosmica, which is still La Raza is still a term used um, to refer to this kind of special uh, mestizaje, you know, uh, amalgamation of races and so on. So he it's a it's a great it's a great gangster rap song also. <laughs> yeah. So he sees Cyrus Teed in the the in the late 19th century already sees the outlines of this, and Father Divine picks up from there. And I find circumstantial evidence that Father Divine's first guru, um, he read some of Cyrus Teed's works, which were widely distributed uh, across certain parts, communities in Pennsylvania, where he had followers. And this, the terminology that they use, God in the fathership degree and the sonship degree, it's too odd to really be totally coincidental. And... That is aside from the fact that the movements also adopted similar practices, as I say. So I didn't focus on MOVE because it had, you know, just a different character in terms of its ideology, in terms of its um, location. Also, when it came down to it, and this is gets back to the cutting room floor, my editor and agent really wanted me to circumscribe historically uh, and end things, with the exception of that epilogue, end things with People's Temple. Because the mm. other two groups I really wanted to talk about more were the Branch Davidians and then Yahweh Ben Yahweh's Nation of, of Yahweh. And oh, yeah. <laughs> that one is and, – and the reason I wanted to to profile those, Ryan, is that the, uh, Jonestown changed a lot. Um, it was kind of like a 9-11 incident in, culturally in mm-hmm. that – Everybody who lived through it remembers it, and it had this downstream or echo effect that lasted for a decade. The whole anti-cult movement was something I wanted to include in the book, um, how it became a staple of daytime TV to have deprogrammers on who yeah. rescued people from cults. That became a feature of my childhood, staying home from school, watching mm-hmm, Don- same. Donahue. And- I mean, there, there, was, and- there, was, there was Donahue and all those shows with Satanic Panic coupled with – Exactly. Yeah, and the idea yeah. of deprogramming and, and how so, wait, that's not a cult. <laughs> oh yes, and many many critics of pro- deprogrammers have said actually they employ the very methods they criticize. <laughs> um, and anyway, I wanted to include those two movements to show how American messianic societies uh, shifted from this open to all, countercultural, um, liberal version of Christianity towards a darker and more exclusive and secretive orientation. And mm. the nation of Yahweh, black Hebrew nationalists, right? They, it was all black. Uh, and the um, Branch Davidians were not diverse either. Mm-hmm. And neither of them really were evangelical. They were more, much more strategic than that right. in terms of acquired members. And whereas you have Jim Jones literally Crisscross and Father Divine crisscrossing the country on a bus, um, doing all kinds of media appearances, anything they could. These other groups tried to stay out of the spotlight, and you have a much more um, there's danger that adheres to these movements, and they know it because 
Bob Dole and the Senate had already been investigating ever since Jonestown, the danger of cults hidden in Reagan's America. Uh, it was a cultural obsession, and you can really peg QAnon and this obsession with the occult. Uh, the most recent uh, efflorescence of that kind of thinking was really that satanic panic of the 80s and cult panic, and people just saw cults everywhere, and mm -hmm. they were just on the brain because – you know, your own kid could have gone to Jonestown and and died. You know, and and that's so where the that gets back to our folklore too, where you know what what town didn't have its folklore about? Oh, that building there is a satanic temple where they <laughs> do A, B, and C happens in there, and, yeah. and 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 then suddenly believing that you know this worldwide uh, pedophile ring is being run out of a pizza place. Yeah. How is that any different? You know, it's the same type right. of. And yeah, I wanted, yeah. I wanted to show how there's continuity there too. That even though the communistic aspect of these 1990s and or 80s and 90s groups was still there, they weren't left oriented in any other way, really. And they were very exclusive, as I say. And it's part of the way that they were responding to the culture, uh, the fear of cults, but also to, to the way capitalism had changed in the meantime. Mm -hmm. And they, I, I wanted to draw a straight line from there to the singularity movement and how it's providing a sort of eschatology or you know, notion of immortality to people who don't have otherwise any religious beliefs or religious community. Mm -hmm. I attended the Singularity Summit uh, if you got to the end of the book, you'll see that I had to gate crash it because it's so expensive. Mm -hmm. And I got in and I, you know, as someone who was raised in a, a church that trended evangelical over the years that I was there, I was blown away by the similarities, not only between my own upbringing and the evangelical nature of the singularity movement, but the similarities between the singularity movement and all of these documents from the 19th century second great awakening that I was looking at uh, and spiritualism. And, you know, there's nothing new under the sun in America in right. some ways. You know, it, it's funny you should mention that because I have on a much more sort of micro level, I have some friends who run a business that is, uh, well, it, it, they make T-shirts and merchandise that is all satanic imagery but with the idea that it's 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 anti-christian it's from that sort of levian right perspective right and they're atheists and uh the bible's a book of fairy tales and why worship one of why worship this god when there's thousands of gods and you know very much in the richard dawkins uh christopher hitchens uh, rest in peace um school and yet the reason why i mentioned them and this isn't to disparage them at all because they're my they're my pals but they are then the same folks who will post their new car on Instagram with a caption about how they manifested their success by, yeah. you know, wishing into the universe. And it's like, okay, I understand why that you don't believe in a sky wizard who listens to your personal requests. And yet, um, you're telling your friends to read the secret. Uh, yes. th it gets to your point of nothing new under the sun. Yeah, and uh, this is a tangent that we don't have to go down since <laughs> we've been talking for a while. But uh, former member of the band Blondie and rock and roll fame inductee um, has written a book called Dark Star Rising. Um, mm. 
Oh, I'm trying to recall his name. Gary. Um, shoot. Where did I just see this? Did I see this on the back of your book? Yes, that's his name. Uh, yeah, uh, Gary, Gary Lackman. Gary Lackman has written a book called, I think it's called Dark, Dark Star Rising. Magic it is about. And, and power in the age of Trump. Magic yes. was the. Uh, and the, he talks ooh, all about <laughs> not only Trump's history in Norman Vincent Peale's Church of Positive Thinking, but about the way that positive thinking manifested in the alt-right and how mm. there was even somebody, and I want to say it was Spencer, who said that it was them manifesting, them being the alt-right, manifesting their will that got Trump elected. And he goes into also this concept of meme magic and how memes worked to conjure a very unreal outcome into reality. Wow. And it's fascinating, and there's tons of overlap between the occult and the right wing that actually is hopefully going to be my next project. Oh, nice. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> you are speaking my language, <laughs> pun intended, in all of these different directions. Yeah, I'll coin it right here. <laughs> I want to use the phrase occult right. Um <laughs> designate that i, mean, I, have, this to, is some... I have to back up from my microphone so i don't blow out your ears <laughs> <laughs> that is yeah, I mean, brilliant it goes back to the 19th century this this um alliance between um, the american vernacular occult and this sort of conspiratorial bent of mind that gets obsessed f with freemasons mm -hmm. um that's also involved in freemasonry uh the anti-masonic movement that's you know, upstate New York is full of that kind of history. But then, you know, the John Birch Society and uh, the QAnon, all of it, all of this conspiratorial thinking that goes along with it just accommodates uh, right wing logic so effectively. And I want to look at that. I want to look at yeah. the history of that in the U.S., but really lean into the occult and occult movements that have actually flourished here. Most people aren't aware of the Silver Shirt Movement. William Dudley Pelley, uh, like an actual fascist movement that came out of the 1930s. Mm. Um, and he was an occultist. That's how he got his start. And, you know, there, I couldn't tell you off the top of my head how many followers there were, but, you know, it was, it was a real thing that happened here. And it came out of that whole California, um, 1930s experimental period where a lot of people are dabbling in the occult. I would think I, more recently, um, Boyd Rice and the Process Church and yep. um, some of those that are, I wouldn't describe them as fascist or white supremacist, but they certainly flirt with the imagery and p pieces of the ideology. And I yeah. feel like, uh, yeah, those those types of characters um, act as, as gateway drugs into some of the, the deeper, more sinister they do. There's certainly a gateway drug to that Norse mythology that you were talking about earlier yeah. and sort of yeah. Thule and the Germanic kind of obsession with old European occultism. Yeah, mm. it's it's all there. And I'm just uh, trying to clear some runway to get into that. Oh, I love it. Well, I'd be happy to um, feed you any potential interview subjects and so on for that. Uh, oh, terrific. Previously on the podcast already, I've had a couple of architects of the Norwegian black metal movement, uh, including one who was, you know, arrested for church burning um, on the podcast. And I, and I think there's a, uh, some people uh, grit their teeth and, and, and reject this premise, but I would say a great 
larger number certainly connects a lot of the black metal thing to that neo-paganism old european tradition stuff that you just referenced also so yeah man a cult right <laughs> there it is yeah. yeah there it is stay tuned yeah oh, fantastic well adam thank you so much for coming on and uh reaching back out to me and connecting I, this has been one of my favorite conversations i've had for this thing and you know the whole idea of the podcast is to bring aboard creative people who have something unique to say about belief or unbelief and you know everything between and uh, you fit that bill in a spectacular fashion so look forward Glad to, to inviting you back sometime well thank you ryan for having me yeah thanks um i will let you know when this goes up and get it all over to you great all right thanks so much thank you Bye -bye. take care